Warning! This episode of The Secret Cinema contains discussions of disturbing and adult content. So, heads up! Remember, you're not nurses yet. In fact, you're just beginning to learn. Many of you still haven't prepared for your futures after graduation. Some haven't even applied for positions. They're probably the ones that have found husbands already. They'll get their RN in case of a divorce. <laughs> well, I'm sure that doesn't cover everybody. Sipping summer smoothies, sailing somewhere, cilantro, Sicilian sexy, sitting inside satchel satellite, surreptitious sunbather, syrup, sail salami, salamander, space, saddle, salad, silly, central Spanish, secret cinema. Welcome to The Secret Cinema, the groovy podcast for far-out films. I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and we're joined again by Emily Neal to discuss Stephanie Rothman's 1970 feminist sexploitation comedy drama, The Student Nurses. We've got more samples than usual, so enough from me. Here's Carrie with the plot summary. As Fred, Lynn, Sharon, and Priscilla head into their last semester of nursing school, they are feeling confident in their ability to provide excellent care. Fred gets assigned to obstetrics, Priscilla joins the psychiatric team, Sharon is sent to the pediatric wing, and Lynn takes on public health. But as prepared as they feel, the nurses learn more about themselves than they do about nursing and it forces them to face hard truths. Can the four women learn to love themselves, or will they miss graduation? The Student Nurses devotes equal focus to each of its four protagonists, so for context, I wanted to play a clip from each of their stories. And just a quick warning, The Student Nurses is an obscure, low-budget, sexploitation film from the 70s, so the audio quality isn't going to be great. In our first clip, Priscilla is interrogated by a male hospital staff member about the pregnancy she wishes to abort. The scene is edited into a montage of intrusive and depressing questions, but when you can actually see the scene, the main thing you notice about Priscilla is that she's annoyed with how unhelpful the man is being. Here's that clip. Have you had a lot of sexual contact with him? No, this was our first, but... But what? But I knew I was gonna... What's uh, bothering you? Nothing. Well, if you want to do something private, I'll look the other way. No, it's just that I never... Yes? Forget it. Why didn't you try to prevent the pregnancy? Who says I didn't? Well, you're not here because of the flu. No, he just wandered off. That upset you? At first, but when I got straight, I mean, when I thought it over, it didn't. Why not? Because he wasn't worth it. Have you ever attempted suicide? Thought about it, but that's all. And your feelings about the baby? I wished it weren't there. Do you always enjoy sex? Sort of. Do you have any allergies? None so far. In her second clip, Fred realizes that she's made a huge mistake with a patient and immediately notifies the handsome Dr. Casper. Fred has spoken casually with Dr. Casper prior to this, but listen to how quickly the encounter begins to move beyond mere flirtation. Here's that clip. Dr. Barbara Kane, please report to emergency. Dr. Casper, I made a mistake. Yes? Mrs. Chang was supposed to receive one-tenth of a cc of adrenaline. What did you give her? One cc. Ten times the proper dosage. When did you do this? About an hour ago. 
Look, I'll go check on these. They're right here. Fortunately, she has a strong heart. She's still bouncing off the walls, but she'll be all right. Can they throw me out of school for something like this? Come on. Dr. Walter Rim. Dr. Walter Rim. Did the right thing by telling me. Not everyone would have had the courage to do that. But aren't you required to report me? There's not many things I'm required to do. Then it's all over. How can I thank you? One way would be to work as hard as you can to be a good nurse. I'm doing that. What's the other way? We can be friends. Then we should do something to cement our relationship. How about dinner? Fine. Why don't you meet me in my place? The Montrose Apartments on Montrose and Pierce. My name is on the mailbox. How will I recognize you? I'll be wearing my stethoscope. In our third clip, Lynn is at the headquarters of political group La Raza when a man with a bullet wound is brought in. The group's leader, Victor Charlie, wants Lynn to remove the bullet herself, but Lynn isn't so confident. Here's that clip. The pig's got manual, man. Uh, maybe he's dead, I don't know. Ralph got away and made it to my house. He's bad, man. Are the pigs still around? They're always around. Did you see any? Not yet, but I got bad feelings. My grandmother, she can't stop crying. How is he? It's still in there. You've got to get him to a hospital. Look, man, the, the man's got a cop's bullet in there. You want to take him to the hospital, huh? So what, so we'll go to jail? It's a bad wound. He needs a doctor. All he needs is somebody to take it out. Well, I'm not qualified. Well, you're more qualified than any one of us. I won't do it. I'm not going to take the risk. Okay, then you better leave. Because we don't want any halfway people around here. Either you're with us or you're against us. And in our fourth and final clip, Sharon spends time with Greg, an 18-year-old slowly dying from cystic fibrosis. Here's that clip. And we'll see you on the other side for our discussion of the student nurses. I've asked to have you transferred. Your efforts are wasted on me. Perhaps some other patient would appreciate you more. I did those things for you with somebody else I might not have. Well, you'll have a chance to find out now, won't you? You really are angry with me, aren't you? It's just another patient won't be quite as nasty as I am. You're proud of being nasty. I am not. Yes, you are. You like hurting people. That's a lie. Well, I've got news for you. I'm not to blame because you thought I was buying you dinner when I wasn't. And I'm not responsible for your disease either. Sharon. Where would you like to go? Nowhere. I want to be with you. I like you. That's why I was so mad. Well, I like you too. Alright, we're back with uh, Emily. Our lovely guest, Emily Neal, and Carrie, our usual co-host, is still on the podcast. <laughs> We're still here! But we have a left. special ghost guest this week. Emily, <laughs> will you give a setup? <laughs> I brought my nurse! He's my boyfriend. Hi, my name's Matt. Hi, Matt. Matt the nurse. For <laughs> student nurses, we have a nurse. Yes. 
Well, this week we're talking about student nurses, Stephanie Rothman's 1970 uh, sexploitation, well, like feminist sexploitation. I, it says drama is the the, the genre. This is oh, I would like, describe it more as a comedy. Yeah, it's like, but it's not necessarily intentionally trying to be silly. I don't know. It's this <laughs> that, movie is a lot. There's a lot going on in this movie. It's and, almost genreless. Yeah, and but that's why we want to talk about it. It's a social commentary yeah. film. While yeah. having tons of boobs and butts. Uh, those are very social things. Yes. <laughs> Don't it's I true. know it. Uh, yeah, okay, Carrie, tell me what you think about this movie. Tell you what I think Just about student opinion. nurses. Yeah. I really like student nurses. Um, Emily and Paolo and I saw student nurses at a screening that the Chicago Film Society did. And we, we went into it, I mean, at least I did. Not knowing anything about it. Yeah. Uh, Paolo said, it's a nurse movie, it's an exploitation movie, but it's directed by a woman, and that was kind of all the context I was given. And we walked out of it and we were like, we, we gotta talk about this on the podcast. We gotta check this out. And since then, Paolo and I, and I think Emily's been a little involved, but we have gone through all of this director's movies for well, the most part. Yeah, we've, we've seen four of them. We actually, oh, I bought one, and we have rented one of the, the, the remaining three that we have left, and there's one movie, It's a Bikini World, that is just really, really tough to track down. Yeah, but, we, but going back to what you said uh, about asking me what I thought of the movie, yeah. uh, <laughs> I really like Student Nurses, which is why we've explored the director's work. And the director, her name is Stephanie Rothman. And for me, the movie, even though it is like uh, technically an exploitation movie as far as, yeah, there's nudity, yeah, there's sex, yeah, there's, there's, blood. there's blood, there's drama, there's a lot of like ladies doing kind of sometimes There's silly drug things. sequences. Yeah. It's very 70s. Like, you know, very early 70s, late 60s. And, yeah, I just, I really enjoy the commentary that Stephanie Rothman somehow inserted into this, what should be a typical exploitation movie. Yeah. Well, and even, it, it, we say inserted, but we have to give a lot of credit, too, that this is not just something that she directed. She was like, all right, here, so no, it, Roger Corman didn't just, like, throw her a bone and be like, here, you direct this movie. She directed it. She came up with the story. She produced it. Uh, it's co, it's, well, it's, it's not written Co-produced. by her husband, but the story was co-written by her husband and co-produced with her husband. And so it really is. Like, we're seeing her, like, the, the limitation placed on her is that it has to be sexploitation. But beyond that, we're just seeing, like, a very, very gifted filmmaker mm-hmm. being more or less allowed to explore whatever point of view she wanted because she doesn't have to worry about appealing to the broadest possible audience. Yeah, the only thing she had to worry about was money. Yeah. I mean, and that's what I've heard from most People who work with Roger Corman yeah. uh, is they <laughs> worry right. about money. Yeah. But okay, Emily, what did you think of the movie? Well, I like kind of like you. I didn't know what to expect out of a movie in the seventies. I thought it would be a lot of robotic dialogue that was like <laughs> slightly dubbed with a lot of montages of people walking and like a lot of bass, like funky music. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there was a little bit of that, but it was. Very thoughtful, and it had actual character development, which yeah. sometimes it's just 
frustrating when you watch a lot of older films and there are female characters and there are male characters and their male characters get cool stuff and women have stuff happen to them. Yeah. But this was very much like women making things happen in the movie. Not yeah. to mention that Stephanie Rothman is such a, an amazing filmmaker that it's she develops everybody. Like, if anyone gets a couple scenes, they get multiple shades. It doesn't matter who they are, as long as they're, if they're important to us, the viewer, then they're important to Stephanie Rothman, and they get extra features. Like, some, obviously some characters in this are more interesting or more developed than others, but even, like, the character we'll get into that is, um the unlikable character in this movie, she has... You mean the nurse? The unlikable nurse? Yeah, especially, yeah, Fred, I guess I was going to say. But when we do talk about Fred, Fred is very interesting as, like, a negative character. She's not an antagonist. No. She's not in the movie to create chaos. She just is in uh, more or less a bad person who coexists with all these better people. And and it's just really amazing how, how Stephanie Rothman is so good with characterization and just like social interaction and like in a way that, especially in sexploitation, most people don't even bother with. And it yeah. seems like that is the point of even, this movie. Even Fred, all of the characters represent real people that I feel like we know. Yeah. And it's Totally I, makes sense. I really like the... So, let's get into the movie a little bit. So, the movie is... Uh, it's called The Student Nurses, and it's about these four student nurses. <laughs> and each of the women who is a student nurse, they live together. They're kind of supporting each other through school, but they all have their own through line of what they're dealing with in addition to going to school. And I think that's what you're talking about, Emily, where they, they are developed through that through line and then... Through their jobs, yeah. Yeah, and through their jobs. And because of that background knowledge that we're given as an audience, when they finally have to, like, come together or work together to solve a problem, it's interesting to see how it plays out. And part of the reason why the nurse, Fred, ends up being the what we've been calling the bad nurse is because she doesn't help with the problem that they have to face. Yeah. What? That's real life. Yeah. yeah, it's totally real life. Yeah. Some people are very selfish while being... I, I'm sure, based on the movie, I mean, Fred does overdose somebody with adrenaline <laughs> at one point, but it doesn't necessarily make the judgment that she's, like, this evil nurse, like, she's a bad nurse. It just... She made one bad mistake at one point, and otherwise she seems to be a good nurse who is a bad person when when pushed into a crisis. Yeah. Uh, but, like, I, I don't know. I love that. I feel like, e like even now, to this day, usually in majority of movies, if there is a person who's bad, they have to be, like, over-the-top evil. Uh -huh. And it has to have this catharsis where at the end they're punished for all their stuff. And sometimes that's fun and sometimes that's enjoyable, but it's not realistic. I, she almost feels like the passive alpha of the group where yeah. they all kind of bend to her will, mm -hmm. but she also is willing to be like, well, if you guys aren't going to listen to me, then fuck you. And she leaves, at, you know, a couple times. Yeah. Um, I, I thought because in the very beginning of the film, it has that very jarring opening where the patient attacks one of the nurses. Yeah. And I... In the first five minutes. Yeah, yeah. it kind of sets the tone for the film. Like, this patient, he's just dressed in, like, 
regular clothes, he attacks one of the nurses, and it looks like he's trying to sexually assault her, but she gets away and locks him in his room and then tells the doctor about it. And immediately the doctor and another, like, male orderly or something, they, like, rip his pants down and shoot shoot something into yeah. his butt, and it's, like, it's humiliating then for the patient. And then the nurse reacts by it, like, she's been attacked, yeah. but her reaction to it is, oh, I hope he's okay. Yeah, yeah that wasn't humane. And this yeah. is Lynn, who is later going to have, like, the most political of the, oh, the subplots, too. But yeah. I also, like, the fact that, again, I'm just thinking of this whole movie through the lens of this is a woman approaching the genre, because it's very rare that women are in this genre, especially in this era, that... The, the guy, I had just assumed he was trying to rape her. Like, it's it's, yeah. the, it's this genre, so it just well, it feels it, so uncomfortable. What, they, they they call him a manic patient. Manic patient. So, yeah, I feel like he was trying to attack her. But and she, she, doesn't, she doesn't do the usual thing that you'd see in those movies where she's, like, crying and screaming. She's just, like, resisting, and the moment she is able to injure him, she injures him and gets up. And isn't, like, running, crying, like, help me, doctor. And she gets out. She's like, doctor, we have a patient that is having some sort of episode. episode. We have to take care of him. She is, like, relentlessly professional even after this happens. And then is so professional that when they get back, the the guy who just attacked her, she still has empathy for him and is, like, still looking out for the correct way to do things no matter what. I feel like Stephanie was really smart in making that the first scene. Like, you think it's going to be this... These are my characters to prove yeah. that it's something different. Yeah, it's, it is a really great opening. And, you know, I, now looking back on it, you know, when that happens in the movie, it's, like like we said, it happens in the first five minutes of the movie. It's, like, the first yeah. action item of the movie. Yeah, I guess the first scene is the women, like, uh, hitching they have to a, hitch ride a ride. Yeah. To the, yeah. yeah, which is, I think and the, that's really Yeah, the great. title appears, I'll, I'll really stop really quickly and just describe this, because it's, it's, it's these two things together perfectly set up the entire movie uh is the girls all in their like fancy clean white nurse outfits all walk out of the house together and get in the shiny red car and it's very glamorous and doesn't seem real and they get in the car they try to start it the car does not start cut to one girl still trying to start the car the other one trying to push the car while the two other nurses hitch are trying to hitchhike for a ride that's when the title comes up with two women hitchhiking while two other women try to fix a broken car. Yeah, that is working as a team. Such a great, that's such an amazing touch, just being like grounding it in real life bullshit, and then bring it over to that like more heightened uh, exploitation type example, and then gro- grounding that thing in very real emotions. Yeah. And so it just, this perfect blend that is also very varied. We're getting a lot of information yeah. in these two scenes. But when, it, when that happens, when the, the patient attacks Lynn, it almost seems kind of, it's very stark because yeah. it happens kind of out of nowhere. Like you're watching them hitchhike and then all of a sudden one of them's getting attacked by a patient. <laughs> but looking back on it now, it's like, oh, that's the start of Lynn's through line. That's the start of her being like, there are people out there that really need help, and people are afraid to help them because of, you know, the circumstances around them, or whatever the case may be, and then she takes that to La Rosa, right? La Rosa. La Rosa, sorry. And you, what did you, you pointed out, I mean, we're going to get to this later, she's working with this La Rosa group, which is a political action group. And you point out, Carrie, why is she helping them? They're such dicks to her. 
same with that patient. In yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. She's Good physically point. and emotionally ta- attacked, and she meets that with professionalism. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. I like that, that Emily. Yeah. yeah. It. She is the one at the end of the movie who she says she's staying in public health, or like there was a public health crisis that she had to take. Yeah. Care we of. should say the four assignments, maybe. Yeah, did you guys of, write them down? For sure, yeah. Lynn was public health. Yeah, I've Lynn got... Was, and Fred was obstetrics and gynecology, and she does a, hook up with a with the doctor that she's, stu- like, studying under. Yeah. Um, Sharon, uh, she Pediatrics. Is, yeah. Yes, pediatrics. <laughs> and then Priscilla, isn't she psychiatry? Yes. 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 And so all of their through lines kind of have something to do with... Exactly. ...where they're assigned. Yeah. It's really great structurally. Yeah. And even you guys talking about Lynn's story, too. I'm just thinking about how Lynn does have that first moment. And then when she uh, like she, she she goes to a protest very early on in the movie. And it's the protest where she meets the members of La Raza. And this guy gets injured. And her response, she kind of watches as the guy, as an, uh, Victor Charlie uh, asks the crowd if there's a doctor there and she leaves and just goes to the hospital because that's where she's like well I need to take care of people but the hospitals where I'm told I'm supposed to do it but I need to do it mm-hmm. and then it becomes this thing where she goes and shows up and she wants to help and he gives her a hard time and she tries to fight but when she when he basically like gives her hard enough time she says, well, fine, if you're not going to help me, then I'm going to go because I want to go somewhere where I can actually do it. And eventually she does allow this. She stops seeking permission. She stops seeking permission. Yeah. And so there's, it's even like, it's still surprisingly subtle. Like there's like very, a lot of detail given to her, her, uh, incremental, uh, shift from this, like, these are the structures. These are yeah. the rules. This is. These are my confines mm-hmm. in which I am a student nurse. Yeah. I I want to go to. Um, I did some research on Stephanie Rothman, and one of the things that um, I found out about her, that she said that really stuck with me while I watched the movie this time was she said that all of her movies deal with questions of self determination. Yeah. <laughs> And if you think about it, yes, everyone in this, every student nurse in this movie has a thing that they have to face and they have to determine who they are in the face of that situation. Well, and we, we wrote down the quote, take not a maiden who loses possession of herself by I Ching, which is very pointedly written yeah. on a chalkboard yeah. in the shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that comes up at a restaurant scene for yeah. some reason. Yeah. There's a lot of moments in the movie that are, you know, very strong points of, okay, am I going to be determined to get through this, or am I just going to deal with the hand that I got dealt? And I would say that uh, Fred and Sharon deal with the hand they got dealt, and Lynn and Priscilla are more self-determined. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's it's even like an even split on, like, who does what. Yeah. yeah. And even so, like, Fred is less sympathetic, while Sharon, while working in her confines, is more sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And then Lynn uh, and, and Priscilla, Lynn ends up more or less, like, leaving the structured world to, to work in a way where she's like, I know I'll be useful. It's not structurally supported by society, but I know I'll be useful. And Priscilla, who spends a majority of the movie not doing things directly related to being a nurse, is the one who 
through her experience is, is like more af- I don't know if it's necessarily that she's more affirmed as a nurse but she as the guy says like now she knows what her patients will be dealing with yeah because she she was drugged she's gone but she herself. she went out, she got drugged with a specifically psychological drug and then had to go through the experience of having deciding to have an abortion and then having an abortion in 1970s America. Mm-hmm. And so both of these things are immense psychological pressures. And uh, even and, though at the time yeah. abortion is legal and it's legal at the hospital that she works at, she can't get an abortion at the hospital she works at because she works there. Because she's afraid she's going to get fired. Yeah. Well, no, the board reviews her, remember? Yeah, it's the- basically like a Republican wet dream. They, The doctor, so she's placed in psychiatry right from the beginning. Yeah. Psychiatry, and then she's questioned. She's interviewed about sex and her life. Yeah, one of the questions is just, I mean, it's as blatant, is why didn't you try to prevent the pregnancy? And her response was, who says I didn't? Yeah, and just the fact that they, the whole scene when the the doctor is questioning her, you never see the doctor, but you see her, and you see her head rest on her hand, and her look more and more bored, and the fact that, like, just emphasizing that these questions are just stupid. Stupid. It's just wasting time. It's it's, it's not for her, it's for them. They also made a point of stressing that Priscilla never wears a bra in the movie, and so during that meeting, she wore a bra to it, and at one point, she's, like, itching her shoulder because she's so uncomfortable, and the person questioning her goes, are you okay? Do you need me to turn away so you can take care of something personal? Yeah. And she's like, no, I'm fine. Yeah, (laughs) but the most pointed question was, do you always enjoy sex? Yeah. Because what that's... the fuck kind of question is that for a woman trying to have an abortion? Yeah. Oh. Um, and her response is sort of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's pretty lackluster about it. Because well, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll later. get to that. Yeah. yeah. But so okay, let's. So we've touched on Lynn. Lynn is. Um, she's involved in public health. She goes to a protest. Um, the other thing about this movie that it does pretty well is each student nurse has a male. Uh, counterpart. Counterpart. Yeah, that's yeah. a nice way to put it. And so Lynn's male counterpart is Victor Charlie. Which, okay, this might be a stupid question, but okay, Victor Charlie is clearly VC. Like, yeah, VC. Viet Cong. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I wanted. I just wanted to make yeah. sure. Yeah. Um. But he, his name is Victor Charlie. Well, but and actually, sorry, really quickly relating to that, how'd you get a name like Victor Charlie? Because I'm the enemy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So like, into it's really great. I love. What did you say about Stephanie and self determination? Because mm-hmm. that's exactly what La Raza is all about. It's yeah. Self like Chicano to back this up a little bit, yeah. a little background. Chicano. I just learned this was a derogatory term at first to call Mexican immigrants in the states because they weren't quite American and they weren't quite Mexican. But the Chicano movement really took it on as like their own term. Yeah. And uh, La Raza literally means race. Oh. And so like all the signs where um, Victor Charlie is like set up, they say like Unidad with the fist, like um, unity signs everywhere. And originally they were just all united under hating the police and being terrorized by the LAPD. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole La Raza movement started in Texas and SoCal. But it turned into more when they adapted, uh, they decided to be more uh, effective. 
they would take in, incorporate more of Saul Alinsky's model of okay. confrontational politics. Oh, that's why you see the performance so, art. Yeah, that's why you see so much violence. I think because that's how they were trying to get and that effective. and that explains why the crowd kind of turns against them at their protest. Because yeah, confrontational. That's the the risk you always run with confrontational protests is that you're you run the risk of agitating someone who just does not get what you're saying. Yeah. And they God, can, and that's so relevant right now because yeah. you know, we've been watching the some of the protests and like for example the protests that happened on inauguration day in yeah. DC where it turned violent. We found Paolo was telling me about how that protest was actually done by anarchists. Yeah. And yeah, the black same black. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, and their whole point is that if we turn violent, we'll get news coverage. And it's like, yep, that's when the the news coverage showed up is once you started like banging out windows and uh, you know, yeah. destroying businesses, like, yep, that's what gets news coverage. Yeah. I don't know if, if this has been made clear yet, listener, but this movie is amazingly politically relevant. Yeah. Like, to a degree, like, we kind of had, we wanted to cover this before the election, but since the election, it's been like, when are we going to get around to covering yeah. this? Because it is so, the, the like, not even just in terms of feminism, but in political concerns and sociological concerns, this movie yeah. is, like, thinking about this stuff and this is 1970, so literally 47 years before <laughs> yeah. now, we're watching a movie that's, like, directly commenting on our society. Yeah. yeah. Lynn's especially, though, because she she's kind of like the expression of privilege in the movie, where she comes in, she's, like, vaguely ethnic, we think, because of her last name said in the movies, but she doesn't speak Spanish. And so she's kind of treated like this ignorant young girl by she the men and yeah. she's like resisting against that but I think she also recognizes like yeah actually I I do exist in a very safe space and I'm trying to use my privilege but when you know she still receives a lot of pushback from Victor Charlie because he at one he's point fully involved. he's like you need to take out this bullet from my friend who just got shot by the pigs and she's like no I'm not qualified but she still is very privileged and yeah. that she has been trained in health and she's the only one in that whole group that's able to do anything. Yeah, well, and the guy that she ends up with kills two cops <laughs> in the movie. And so at the end of the movie, she's really had kind of an awakening and she has to decide whether she's going to fully commit to being involved in the movement. Yeah. And that's the end of the movie is her saying like, well, fuck nurse school. I'm going to join the fight. Yeah. And but like who can't relate to her feeling like I'm just one person. I'm just a student nurse. Yeah. But, <laughs> but she has a lot of power. Like she chooses to use it in the end, um, saving people who don't have access to hospitals and it's kind of like well we all could do a lot more with what we have we just yeah. aren't like really told that uh we should do it yeah you're told that there's like a system and yeah. you, you go through the system and do it and if you are just willing to break the system and just go directly to where the problem is and just start taking care yeah. of it well yeah uh, she even says hospitals have got to go to the people yeah mm -hmm. Because that's one of the things that happens with her and Victor Charlie. They're driving around, and he's like, see that lady down the street? She couldn't go to the hospital. She got hurt at work. She has, If she goes to the hospital, then they'll find out that she has a job, even though she's on welfare, and she has seven kids, and 
And so, you know, he's starting to open uh, Lynn's eyes and, and tell her about why the hospital system doesn't even work. For, yeah, it's for, so cathartic to watch that. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, moving on from Lynn, then we've got uh, Priscilla. Yeah. Priscilla uh, is, she's uh, all about love. That's her thing. Well, she even says it. Psychiatry. Is her yeah. Opinion, so, yeah, yeah, but she even says at one point, it's all about love anyway, isn't it? Um, you know, and she ends up, her storyline really shows the 70s things that Emily was talking about, yeah. where they do a lot of, like, car montages, and there's a scene where <laughs> she goes with her male counterpoint to a field, and they're oh, like... Oh, it's a beach. It's a, no, no, oh, there's I'm a sorry, field, yeah. a meadow, and then a dog shows up. A dog randomly shows up, like, they <laughs> emphasize that dog is only in that one shot. Like, they, they ride a motorcycle there, and then they leave the dog. I wonder even if that dog was, like, just scene. in the shot, and so it was just like let's keep going people love yeah. dogs well and it's the thing I really I, I would say of all the student nurses Priscilla is probably my favorite but uh, the thing I really like about her is she starts off so ignorant and you know she's doing things like going with a strange man to a meadow that yeah. she's never met before she's and like riding like, his motorcycle okay I can totally identify with her being like a young woman a guy she's very naive a guy says something smart to her and she's like oh he's provocative I'm gonna hop on his motorcycle not to mention <laughs> yeah. not to mention the culture in which lovins are taking place oh, it's sure. a culture that's like very open you're like she's it's it's the type of culture where you see a motorcycle and you walk up to it and just rub your hand all over it. Yeah. And the guy is like, oh, well, she's touching my motorcycle. That means I'm going to touch her motorcycle. <laughs> like it, her it's, headlights. Yeah. Her headlights. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's so it's like one of those things where it's like, it is kind of weird to watch, but it's also like not totally unbelievable. Right. And, and it's like, yeah, right, she's going to be naive. That's what I'm yeah. saying. I like that she's, she, you know, she starts very naive and you see her learn about herself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Through the, through her through line in the movie. And in the end, she's the one who, you know, she doesn't like blame anyone else for her problems. She's not really like looking for sympathy. She works through it herself and she takes the initiative to tell the people that are in her life, like, this is what I'm dealing with. And through talking about it and, you know, explaining her situation, she is able to rally help. Yeah. And is she the only one that we see first person camera through? I believe so, yeah. Carrie, you made the comment that she is the protagonist. I don't think she's, like, obviously, I don't think she's intentionally, like, Cho- like it was written like you are the protagonist but the way the film is assembled she is the most important character we yeah. see her yeah. the most just like being contemplative and like having quiet scenes where you're just like kind of like you're in her headspace well but then again is that I, I, I I'm honestly very tempted to give Stephanie Rothman this level of credit is that because she's psychiatry and therefore being put in her headspace oh. relates more uh, and not even structure, not just structurally, oh, but beautiful. logically. That like, is... yeah, I mean, I 100% so would believe that Stephanie Rothman did that intentionally. Like, she is oh that God. capable. How did this not take, like, years to make? She's so smart. I don't know. Well, and that's the thing that she, okay, so if we're, let's talk about Stephanie Rothman for a little bit. Yeah. She wanted to make movies, and I didn't know this, but the reason she wanted to make movies is she saw The Seventh Seal. 
And she was like, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. That was the movie. And she's said still, even now, like, you know, in the late 2000s, she said that that's still her favorite movie. And And Seven Seal is the type of famous movie that, if you remember, it's in Last Action Hero. Yeah. Like, it's, Seventh Seal is, like, an amazingly iconic uh, movie. <laughs> uh, we just saw it, I just saw it for the first time last year, and it is, I mean, it is beautiful, and it has a great story to tell. Yeah. Um, and Max von Sydow's in it. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> and he's so young and handsome in it. But anyway, so she saw that movie, and she decided she wanted to make um, films. She went to, I think she went to UC Berkeley, and... From there, she was the first woman to ever be given the Directors Guild of America Fellowship. Yeah. And so she received that, and she started working, but nobody really wanted to hire her to direct movies. And so, eventually, she got found by Roger Corman. Roger Corman, in case you don't know, he's like a... He's basically like the most prolific... Uh, mentor mentor yeah of of like hollywood yeah. filmmakers we would not have jonathan demi francis ford coppola um stop me rough yeah. <laughs> uh so many joe dante yeah god yeah. so many definitive filmmakers of american film anyway so he gave stephanie rothman a shot um he asked her to direct parts of bloodbath which had mostly already been directed it's like that that one that might end up being its own episode we bought the blu-ray for it and the blu-ray is three discs with no it's sorry it's four discs because it has every version of the movie there are oh, four wow. different cuts of it and the version that she made is co-made with Jack Hill, who made Spider Baby, because it was literally just Roger Corman being like, here, you're a, a skilled director, Stephanie. You try to make something of this, and then I'm going to give it to Jack, and he's going to try to do something with this. But he, Roger Corman ended up not really liking too much of what Jack Hill did, so I think he gave it back to Stephanie Rothman. <laughs> and so it's mostly her movie, but yeah. it's, it's still like, yeah. Yeah, so Roger Corman gave her her big break, so she got to do Bloodbath. And then after that, she did It's a Bikini World. And she, she has said this openly, but after she did that movie, she got so depressed about the experience that she thought about giving up film altogether. She, she really hated doing that movie. But then Roger Corman came to her with student nurses, and that reignited her career. Um, yeah. yeah, good, definitely. She went on to direct five more or four more movies after student nurses. Um, and those are the ones that most of those I've seen yeah. and, and they're, they're all interesting. Vel- Velvet Vampire. That's the thing I really like about her is some of them, yeah, they might have be like really seventies or a little hokey, maybe in the premise, like one of the movies she did is called Group Marriage. Yeah. So, you know, three guesses about what that's about. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, she's all really of those that. movies are so interesting. They are. Like yeah. Group Marriage is set in the 70s, and it is about people who are trying to make a group marriage work. Yeah, it gets like, up to, like, what, what? seven or eight people Yeah, in they, they end up, like, placing a newspaper ad, and people start showing up, and they're like, I want to be in the group marriage, <laughs> I want to be in the group marriage. And then, like, you know, there's, like, infighting in the group marriage, and then there's, like, people who break off, and they want to still be in the group marriage, but they want to be exclusively together in the group marriage. Anyway, it's just so interesting. Yeah. And all of her movies get into that, like, weird complexity of, like, male and female relationships and how you survive and, like, how, what decision you make predicts your future. 
And but also, these, and we should mention too that all these movies are relentlessly sex positive. Oh, in like yeah. the best possible way. Like it is obviously to a certain extent for like the male members of the oh, audience. Yeah. Stephanie but... Rothschild, come for the boobs, stay for the commentary. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But like it's it's still like very a very feminist point of view. Well, and that's another thing is she said that she didn't know that the student nurses movie was considered an exploitation movie until after the movie was made and she read a review of the movie where they called it an exploitation movie. She was like, I didn't even know what that was. Yeah, there was there was a review I read about Velvet Vampire where they referred to it, like when it was showing as like trash. Like Euro sleaze style trash. Yeah, she didn't even know that's the kind of movie she was making. There's only one scene in Student Nurses that is like, okay, come on. You didn't need to do that. <laughs> um, What's and, that and scene? It's like, what really is simple. it? It's not when even they that. they traded their shirts. Yeah, they traded their shirts. <laughs> Like no, you oh, can't wear God. it. That's my scarf. It doesn't go with my blouse. Well, I guess we have to switch. And then the other girl's like, "Well, I'll be waiting here when you guys get this figured out." <laughs> yeah, that's like I had totally forgotten about but that like, scene. Yeah, but like uh, all the other ones where they're naked, it's all on the women's terms. Like, yeah. like you know, the one woman's on acid when she's naked, but it's a beautiful scene. Yeah, yeah. and she even admits like she was like, "Well, I I figured I was going to have sex." It's not like he is like he drugs her and completely takes advantage of her. He takes advantage of her for sure, but he takes advantage of her when she was already wanting to have sex, but suddenly she is on a mentally transforming drug. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's, but she wanted to be there. She just had no idea what it was like to be on acid and he took advantage of that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but, um, another thing I, I, I don't really have a lot to say about this because it's hard to quantify, uh, but, we're, we're talking about how great Stephanie Rothman is with structure and writing, and we're really not saying much about how amazing of a visual stylist oh, she yes. is. Sure, yeah. And it's it's hard to say in this movie, because this movie doesn't really have any of those, like, iconic shots that you think of, of like, what's the greatest shot of all time? Like, a Kubrick or a Hitchcock-style shot. But there is no poorly directed sequence in this entire movie. Yeah. And she's clearly working with a low budget, but she knows where to put the camera. She knows how to use three-dimensional space. I would argue that those scenes where Priscilla has her kind of uh, hallucinations, those are really great. And how she mirrors her acid experience with with her abortion, with her being on anesthesia later. Yeah. And they kind of, they mirror each other where during her acid trip, she sees all of her student nurses and the doctors, and then when she's having the procedure done, she then goes back to the beach and sees those same people. Mm -hmm. And, um... Yeah, it's really great. But all even like small scenes where at the end, I know we haven't talked about Sharon at all because yeah. she's kind of the least important person. <laughs> yeah. She's the but Phoebe. <laughs> she's like right after her patient dies that she just got close with finally, she has like a few lines near the end where she's like lamenting his grieving his loss and um Priscilla is sitting very close to her, but still has, like, her back to her, and then, um, Fred has, she's completely on the other side of the bench, still in the shot, but has her back to her, and has just, like, turned her head around, and even the position of the women is very well thought out. Yeah, very effective placement. Uh, there's, like, a lot of the sex scenes use, like, a dark room with, like, a crack of light coming in, where it's, like, just enough so it's not, like, gratuitous, it doesn't make it just, they're not, like, the actors aren't just splayed out for us to see, uh, but it, it and so it gives like a very dynamic piece of lighting to something that's like 
you know what it is here for, so why not at least try to make it visually interesting? Yeah. Whereas it's, most most of those movies of the era, it's just like, the sex scenes are genuinely boring because they're like, yeah, you just want nudity. You don't care how you're getting it. Yeah, and it doesn't have that gross, like, red light. Yeah. Where it's like, sometimes yeah. it's like, ooh, there's a sex scene, the light has to be red. Yeah, it yeah. usually feels skeezy. In this movie, it does not feel skeezy. And it's, it's not just... Like how it's directed, but how the like you guys said the the conception of these nude scenes like there is a lot of thought put into it, and you it's like I don't know even for me I can empathize with the nature of certain moments during sex scenes where it's like it's it's very human it's yeah, very fun a, for these people they even have a casual sex scene between Fred and Doctor Casper where Doctor Casper is is implied to be incompetent or like impotent at the moment yeah like he can't perform oh, yeah, he's, he's bummed out yeah he he's bummed a, out because he had he, a, a patient who died, died. yeah died. <laughs> And so they even, like, go through the effort of showing that sexual uh, experience. Yeah. yeah, and how unsympathetic Fred was. Like, uh, yeah, she's you can't pleasure me? <laughs> Fuck you for being a doctor with feelings. Well, what she specifically is upset about is that he brought... Him talking about Yeah, it. he yeah. brought work into bed. Which, let's, like... They work together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about Fred for a little bit, because Fred also... I mean, there's a lot of stuff that makes Fred the unlikable character. The very first thing is that ten minutes into the movie... Uh, uh, she overdoses a, a well, patient. The, that's how she meets Dr. Casper. That's his name, right? Yeah, Dr. Right. Casper. So she meets Dr. Casper, and it's they clearly, like, from that conversation, they're like, oh, we're going to fuck each other. Like, within five <laughs> minutes, they're like, we're definitely going to do it. So Dr. Casper gives Fred his key and is like, yeah, just uh, wait for me at my apartment. Uh, I'll be uh, I'll be wearing a stethoscope or something like yeah. that. Yeah, she's and like, how will I recognize you? How will I recognize you? you? Which, Which is such a dumb question. Yeah, it's an immediately weird because it's like it's setting up the joke. And also, they're appreciate. meeting at his apartment. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's just it's a bizarre conversation, but it's setting up the fact that she goes there and goes into a bedroom with and leaves the light off, and then. Well, she's she, naked. She's completely naked. Someone comes home, opens the door, is in a doctor's outfit and wearing a stethoscope, and she's like, what are you doing? Come on, get in here. Does she call him Dr. Casper? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, she says it, but the guy is not Dr. Casper. It is his roommate, but he's wearing a stethoscope, so he's good to go. And she, he gets in the bed with her, and Dr. Casper... Uh, sprints home. Sprints home. He gets out of his car, leaves the door open, and a guy with a very phallic hose is like, hey, you left your door open. So uh, Dr. Casper closes the door, puts on his stethoscope, which is like, he's like turning on his penis, basically. <laughs> oh, can't forget my penis. Yeah. Um, and uh, he runs in and he finds, he like opens the door. And when he opens the door, Fred is having sex with the roommate and is like, do you mind? Can we have some privacy? And then she looks and sees Dr. Casper. And the facial exchange between Dr. Casper and the roommate is so good because the roommate gives like a, I don't know, type of look. And Dr. Casper just looks so disappointed. And then Dr. Casper but continues they... to date Fred for the rest of the movie. Yeah, he's like, he, she, she's like really clearly embarrassed afterwards. And he's like. But she like blames him. Yeah, her. yeah. And she, he's like, well, he didn't have my stethoscope. But she's like, they all look the same to me. Venus Jones. Oh, man. And also, Dr. Casper's roommate is like a dark-haired, really, hairy. really hairy-chested guy. Yeah. And Dr. Casper is this, like, blonde... The Kendall guy. <laughs> he yeah. is, a, quote, a little square around the edges. 
Yeah, but he... Uh, I would say that second to Priscilla, Dr. Casper is my favorite character. He's, yeah. he's, he's like the unsung hero of the movie. I, I, I just saw something in my notes while we're talking about Dr. Casper. I want to point out the moment where... Like some, it's like midway through the movie, Doctor Casper has like failed to have sex with Fred like the third time in a row or something, <laughs> yeah. and so he sits outside. He gets to the apartment, but instead of going in, he sits outside and he has five rocks sitting next to him. <laughs> and one by one, each of the other nurses come out, and after they they come out and they're like, "Hi," to Doctor Casper, and they walk away, and he grabs a rock and just throws it in the street. And after three of the women come out. There's just two rocks left, so he grabs both the rocks and pockets them. And I noticed that one was white and one was black. So yeah. it's like, clearly the black rock was him and the white <laughs> rock was Fred. But he pockets them and goes in and, and they have sex. Or is that a reference to his balls? Because they like, already did the stethoscope maybe, as his penis. Yeah, so I don't know, maybe. The rocks are but his like, ball, he's got to get his rocks off. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it, it could be. But it was just like such a, a, a funny touch. Like, for this guy, this guy is like waiting to get laid, and there's so many ways. Oh, that he's movies, a doctor. He's a really handsome doctor. Really? But he's, he's like, he's impeded by from having sex just because. The one girl he wants to have sex with lives with three other women. Yeah. yeah. and But he's just like, he, they, they come up with, Stephanie Rothman comes up with, or maybe the screenwriter Don Spencer came up with this business. But this business of him just like having rocks and throwing rocks as a means of counting. Like that's such an interesting choice for that scene where there could be easily nothing. Like, it could yeah. be just a throwaway moment, and they instead make it something that we remember, and it's just him waiting to get laid. <laughs> that's yeah. all it is. Yeah, I really liked Dr. Casper. I mean, he the only thing he did in the movie that's a little ridiculous is he gets really upset about Fred. About Les, the hippie um, guy. Who, the health nut, yeah. Yeah, the hippie yeah. guy who knocks up Priscilla. Yeah, I think he was just irrationally angry because he was, stop he was trying yeah. to hook up with Fred on the couch and Les and Priscilla come home they were and started yeah. talking about peaches and DDT. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, I love that interjection of, like, pe the pesticides. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that, I mean, that's true. But Dr. Casper hated that talk. Yeah. He also, uh, uh, he has some really great lines. Well, and he is the, uh, like I said, he's kind of the unsung hero because he performs Priscilla's abortion. Let's talk about the abortion. Yeah. Let's yeah. let's just dig into that right now because I got a lot of quotes written. So <laughs> we touched on Priscilla. She, you know, she goes to the beach with this guy she meets. His name's Les. And they take acid together and presumably have sex. And Priscilla ends up pregnant. So she can't get an abortion at the hospital because she had that review by the board and they said, nope, you're not crazy enough to need an abortion, so we're not going to give you one. And she's yeah, like, Mike, well, what I do I... Mike Pence wrote all those questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she's... There's a, a, a scene where she is trying to discuss with... Dr. Casper and her three roommates, like, well, what am I gonna do? I guess I can work on the street. And she. And yeah, she, she does say that. She's yeah. like, I can live on the street for a while. And it's like, oh my God. Yeah, and so she's so faced weak. with a decision that a lot of women find themselves facing. And luckily, she's a student nurse, and one of her friends is a doctor, and he's like, hey, I'll help. Uh, perform your abortion, and then her, and then Lynn and uh, Sharon. Uh, Sharon are like, "Yeah, we'll help. Like all three of us. It's gonna be a group project, basically. Yeah, <laughs> we'll learn a lot. Yeah, but they like, and they those three, and those three, 
they 100% want to do it. There's no, there's no swaying them. It's like, you're our friend. If this is what you need, this is what we'll do. Fred is 100% against this. Well, and this is, again, a thing I don't, I'm not sure. And uh, I, maybe Rothman left this ambiguous for a reason, but Fred doesn't seem to be anti-abortion. She seems to be anti-abortion in my apartment. No, because you, know, you remember when they're talking about it, when they're talking about, uh, she's like, I can't get the abortion uh, and everything. Fred is like, well, you can have the baby. She, Fred is pushing oh, her I to have just, the baby. I guess I just didn't notice that. Yeah, you missed that. But yeah, yeah. she's like flat out saying like, no, you should have the okay, baby. Okay, so she is an, like anti- She might not be like anti militantly anti, but she just represents she just like, the one fourth of women who are super anti-choice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, there you go. There's four women. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know the statistics. That's just like... But and so, the, yeah. the, the thing I like, though, is at the after Priscilla has the has the abortion, Fred still goes up to Priscilla and is like, how are you doing? Are yeah. you okay? Like, you just had an abortion. <laughs> I mean, after, after uh, Priscilla has that trip where she's abandoned naked on the beach by herself... All of her friends are really concerned about her. Yeah. Yeah, she yeah. comes home. And actually, that's another thing is she comes home because she's still on acid when she gets home. They talk about like how she is like she's still going through it, and she they offered her coffee, but she wasn't ready for it. And then she comes out after she's like come down from acid, and she's wearing like you guys described. She looks like she's wearing like a Jesus. A so yeah, wrong. they're just like and, at the pool hanging and, out, and she they're like, "How do you feel?" And Priscilla looks at Fred and says, "Fred, what's that?" lizard doing in your lap and Fred looks down and is like what are you talking about and then Priscilla smiles drops her toga to reveal just like a colorful bathing suit and she jumps in the pool and the film like goes in slow motion. It gets slower and slower and slower and slower until it like freeze frames on like Priscilla halfway in the pool and then just ends the, yeah. the scene. <laughs> yeah. It's like she's in her Jesus robe and then she gets baptized in the pool. That moment reminded me of the in the swimmer when Burt Lancaster's <sighs> running with the horse. Yeah, we always think of that. <laughs> I really love that movie. That yeah, that movie's great. great. We, I I want to do that for Secret Cinema. Um, let's see if Paula lets us. I only have not said that because it's not a secret. I heard about it through a bunch of other similar yeah, types of things. It's relatively well and so known. we wouldn't be we wouldn't have the exclusive. That's all. I do love that movie. Maybe we'll talk about it for like our 50th episode or something. All right, fair enough. Because our 100th is, well, no what, spoilers. What is it? Uh, but do anyway, you know? I do. We've talked about this before. Oh, man. But let's go back to the abortion. All let's right. Let's talk about abortion some more. Um, <laughs> so they're, they're going to give Priscilla the abortion in the apartment, and they have the bedroom set up and everything, and they're going to do it, and then... Dr. Casper and Sharon and uh, Lynn are all there. And then Fred shows up and... She's so upset. She's super mad. And, um, she and says, they're like, she's like, why didn't you tell me this was ha going on? And they say, because we thought that you would not approve. And yeah. she's like, you're damn right I don't approve. Well, and she she specifically says, because she's fighting with Dr. Casper, and she specifically, she says when, she, when Dr. Casper shows up, she's like, oh, the abortionist is here. And then says... No one's going to get their insides scraped in my bedroom. And Dr. Jesper has to physically restrain 
Fred. Like, Fred is, like, she's trying to fight dumb, her. She's that awful protester outside of Planned Parenthood that you have to just walk past. Yeah, uh, she's, she's like, trying to fight her way up to the bedroom to, like, stop the abortion. And uh, Diary Esper has to just, like, grab her arms and, like, force her to lay down on the couch so she will just stop hitting him. And so her response to that is she leaves and goes and sleeps with his the, roommate, the roommate again. Yeah. yeah. And, um, oh, his name is Mark. That is the roommate's name. Uh, so yeah, Fred's, Fred's really, really shitty. And then after that, there's no, like, there's no thing that happens. She doesn't get comeuppance or anything, but she does continue to like snipe or like pick on the other girls. Fred's storyline seems to have the, the biggest halt stop at yeah. the end where we have no idea what she's going to do, but Actually, it almost it's doesn't implied, matter. No, it's implied. Cause remember the roommate that she sleeps with Mark gives her a yeah. card because he's like, Hey, my friend is starting. He needs a, a secretary, a right? Yeah. yeah. You would be great decor in the office. Yeah, so she might not it's even stay of, as a nurse. I think it's implied that she's going to go and just, like, be pretty and then get married off. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. And have babies. Well, and she clearly was not, uh, wor- she, of the, all four of them, is the least worried about providing care for others. Sure, yeah. She re- That's not her number one priority. Her number yeah. one priority is herself. Yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, uh, Priscilla... Has this amazing, like I said, this like super supportive abortion. Has, yeah. yeah, she has this second trip yeah. where she remembers her first trip while yeah, she gets her inside spray. She out. mutters because she like the she imagines the doctor's questions again, and it doesn't even like show him. It just shows the procedure happening, and you hear the voiceover of him saying like, "What do you feel about the child?" And her and she says out loud in the room, "I wish it wasn't there." Uh, to her, like just she's like clearly under anesthesia and she's out of it but she just says i wish it wasn't there and it's like very consistent every time she talks about the baby she wishes it wasn't there there's no like well i i would keep it but i just yeah, it's like i don't that. want this baby yeah. i and need the, an abortion the other thing that's interesting about that abortion scene is it's juxtaposed with fred sleeping with the roommate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you get to see someone enjoying sex and then someone having an abortion. Yeah. Over, overlaid. Yeah. Then, too, what is the, what happens when, uh, what's the exact quote when Dr. Casper runs into Fred after that? She, and I quote, after um, he confronts her for sleeping with his roommate, she says, what I do with my body is my own business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he even he even says, "How are you doing?" And she says, "How do I look?" And he says, "I can't tell how you feel based on how you look." And it's I like, can't see how you feel. Yeah, yeah, I can't see how you feel. Yeah, zing. Such a good line. Oh, what a great line! Yeah. Also, the type of line where it's like. Yes, this has a, a a woman's point of view over this. Like a guy is not going to be like, "Well, I'm paying that close of attention oh, now." You like in a, a men's movie, like it's Arnold Schwarzenegger out, saying that's sort of line. Yeah, <laughs> no male director, even in this, well, maybe in this day, but back then, no male director would have allowed a speculum to be on the screen. Yeah, or even have thought about it. Yeah. If, a spec, you see a speculum clearly. It'd be maybe on a table at most. It would be not like in the doctor's hand, yeah. coming out of her. It's, Where it's it like was, it was being used. Yeah, and yeah, and it's and not and also just the fact that the abortion, besides Fred freaking out, is presented by characters that we like and think of as intelligent, informed people. It is normal. They are not 
weird about it. They're not nervous as they do it. They're like, this is a medical procedure just like any other medical procedure. Lynn is professional, uh, is almost calmer. She is calmer during the abortion than she is uh, when she's working with uh, La Raza. Like she, mm-hmm. it's the abortion is not something that is like, it is something that's, it's, it's unfortunate for the woman who needs it, but it's not something that should be scary uh, in the broad sense because it's something that people need. And it's kind of like, I'm really sorry your wisdom teeth came in and you don't have room in your mouth. I know I have to have surgery. Yeah, it's exactly like that. It's like, (laughs) I don't want those, I don't want someone's mouth being scraped out in my bedroom. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like very, very, very flatly presented. I love that. I love like, it's uh, one of my favorite movies is Trust by Hal Hartley and Trust what, I, I, I don't know why I love movies with abortion so much, but <laughs> trust, trust is a similar thing where it's like the abortion itself isn't the big deal. The decision is the big deal. And then you should, once you make the decision, just be able to have the abortion. A medical professional can handle it. Yeah, because it's yeah. not like one of those easy decisions where you're just willy-nilly no, like, it's, I'm not going to think about this. It's, it's, still, a, it's, a, it's still a, a decision. Yeah. Yeah, and it's still misunderstood by women. Like, so even as somebody I know that had an abortion, she just had to take the pill. And she was saying, she's like, I'm really glad I got caught it early and it was easy. And um, I didn't have to get cut open. And I was like, that is not how abortion works. Yeah. You don't yeah. get cut in your stomach. Yeah. That's not at all. Yeah, I you think... get to leave right after you have an abortion. Yeah. <laughs> you don't, like, stay in the hospital for days yeah. or anything. It's easier than wisdom teeth being removed. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about Priscilla's uh, realization afterwards. Like, she's talking to... F- who is she talking to? She's, like, in her bed recovering afterwards. Oh, I, I can't Oh, remember. she's talking to Fred. They're is studying. It? They're going to yeah. study together. Yeah, and she says, um, like, she's basically talking about how, yeah, she doesn't, she's never really enjoyed sex with any of the men that she's had sex with, but she, I I, I didn't get any of the specific quotes, but I wrote down, she said, uh, maybe I should try something else, heavily implying, like, bisexuality. Like, just like, yeah, "Yeah, well, that didn't work, why don't I try this other thing? It's just, it's it's equally valid. Interesting. And and no one is, like, against it. Interestingly enough, that actress in real life is bisexual. Hmm. Yay. Well, and, and she uh, worked for Playboy. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, she also had an affair with Elvis. Nice. She got pregnant by Steve McQueen and had an abortion. Nice. And she was married to Joe Lewis. Also, oh, wow. that's how much of a badass she is. Where she is like, can you how famous and the type of person Steve McQueen is in that era? And she got pregnant by him and was like, yeah, fuck this baby. <laughs> <laughs> like she, that's powerful. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that is real, like self determination, right there. Yeah, she also, Paolo, she's in Pretty Maids all in a row. Oh my god! All right, well, another future episode. And I realized when we're talking about abortion. This is not going to be our last long discussion of abortion on this podcast. No, because we're going to do that palindrome. Yeah, we're going to do palindromes. Yeah. Keep an eye out, everybody. It's coming. Um, okay, we've talked about Priscilla. We've talked about Fred. Let's give some love to Sharon. Sharon. Oh, we talked about Lynn as well, though. Yeah. Okay. Sharon's a sweetheart, <laughs> but she has the least uh, complex plot line. Yeah. I feel like Sharon's uh, storyline is driven by the idea that um, it's driven by the concept that when you're a nurse, you can be too empathetic. Yeah, they say specifically at the end of hers to, like, this is the thesis statement of her plotline. 
Mourning is for loved ones, not nurses. It's a luxury a nurse can't afford. Yeah. And it's true. Yeah. You you have to provide Well, the is empathy. it true, Matt? Our resident nurse? I don't know. I think there's a certain <laughs> amount of crying that's good to do. Yeah. I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Crying yeah. is great. Yeah. It feels really good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's an emotional job. Yeah. yeah. But you have to just be a, the part of the being a professional as a nurse is being able to balance your yeah, emotions and right, their emotions. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Stepping back when you have to. Yeah. There, NPR even did a story about this where they talked about, like, political movements and how empathy is associated with a lot of people on the left, but you can get really drained quickly from being over-empathetic where you should sure. maybe focus on being compassionate but not empathetic because you will wear yourself thin. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and there's a scientific study, too, that, that showed that empathy wears off a lot faster than compassion just because it's so much more draining. That makes sense, and yeah. And she rep- Sharon represents that. She's placed in pediatrics, which in and of itself is probably hard because they're younger. Yeah, yeah. and, and then- she's given a terminal patient. Bubble boy. Yeah. Which, he did not seem like a child. Well, he said 18. He did say okay. he was 18. Because oh, okay. I was wondering about that, too. But I was like, okay, this is the movie's being like, all right, it will be creepy if she, at the end of the movie, yeah, gets in bed with this with this 15-year-old or whatever. So they just, like, played it safe and made him weak. And what was he dying from? Cystic fibrosis. Okay. <laughs> so he'd been in the hospital, what, all his life? Basically, basically, yeah. And Sharon, she takes care of him. They end up going and getting groceries together and sitting in the park together and things because he can't really do much. But at the end, he's like, well, not at the end exactly, but uh, towards the end of the movie, he says to her, don't go. I don't want to go to sleep. I'm afraid if I go to sleep, I'll die. And she's like, I'm not going to leave. And she gets undressed, (laughs) kisses him, and then gets in bed with him. Yeah. And then the next day he dies. And so... <laughs> she yeah. goes to check her grades and he dies while she's doing that. Like, yeah, yeah. she's celebrating graduation with her friends. And, and meanwhile, he... he has graduated from life. It is, it's just like... Yeah. yeah it's, it's Nude sleepover leads to... <laughs> his heart can't handle it. Yeah, and so that's really... I mean, her storyline is probably the least important... Of all the, uh, I would say, like, yeah. hierarchically. Yeah, I mean, s- symbolically, like, the function of it is relevant. It, it, it needs to be there to balance with everything else. Like, this, like, total broad idea of what n- nurses need to be able to engage with. Or will have to engage with. Sure. And, but it's just, like, the details of that are by very the very nature not exciting because for it to be exciting you have to be with her dealing with death nonstop over and over. Yeah, and, or an unexpected death. And this is the more realistic the more realistic version is much more mundane, which is that yeah, you just by being in the health industry, you're going to see people slowly pass away. You're gonna mm-hmm. see people die right away and it's gonna be stressful and traumatic, but you're also gonna have to deal with people that you get to know yeah. and you like and you talk with on their way to death, and that is something you have to deal with. And it's not really... Like, the movie does a good job of making it, like, playful and interesting without being just, like, very heavy and depressing. But that's also probably the reason why they don't dwell on it as much, is because it would be very... It would be a very different type of movie to have this, like, existential issue just, like, weighing over everything while these other parts are more, like, grounded yeah. in specifics. I think the biggest payoff for Sharon's... Uh, storyline is at the end 
when they've all graduated uh, from nursing school and they're packing up their apartment and Dr. Casper comes by and he says to Sharon, he says, oh, I heard you're going to Vietnam. And he says, Greg's not going to be there. He's <laughs> like, Damn! Yeah, Greg just died. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so he's understanding that her motivation to go to Vietnam comes out of her experiencing this loss and, and feeling like, okay, maybe there's nothing worth living for. Well, and, and that, like, I think she takes that where she could feel, like, helpless because she just lost somebody that she had been taking care of. Instead, I think she's, like, she really thinks being about self-determined it. is, like, you know, I'm this affected by one death, but I don't even know what real suffering looks like. I'm going to volunteer and do something good. Yeah. yeah. So she does do something that's... That's self-determination and very interesting, I guess. Yeah. It's not very interesting, but they it's kind really of like... They really kind of gloss over it. Like, yeah. it's... Oh, it's 1970. We should have some mention of the Vietnam War. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's very much, like, the type of thing where it's like, yeah, a bunch of, like, hippies in California would be aware of it, and some of them would be protesting it, but it, after years of it, it's it would be like with the war in Iraq for us, where it's just like, yeah, still going. And the, the, the references to it just become shorthand in your vocabulary because it's just like, it's part of your life. It's not the thing that defines, like, it's not like in the first year where you're like, every day you're checking the newspaper to be like, what is happening with the war? You're just like, it's still going. It's still going to be going next month and probably be going the year after that. So it's like, it's, it's just like one of many social concerns that's folded into every other thing. Yeah. Well, so we've gone through all of the nurses. We've gone through their male counterparts. What else from this movie are you guys left with? Or that we we haven't yeah. talked about? Well, yeah, some, just some one-off stuff, I guess. Because, yeah, we really... This movie is great, listener. It's really complex, but it is also fairly short. And it, there isn't really a plot beyond what we've discussed. Uh-huh. It is kind of just a collection of scenes that allow these points of views and ideas to be explored and it's the most fun way that this stuff could be done but it is it's not like other movies we talk about where there's a lot of like structural stuff to get into it's yeah. very it's very it's much looser but there are some other cool things we could talk about i do want to mention the the little bit of like visual symbolism during the abortion scene when Priscilla is hallucinating and she sees Les, right? Les was the <laughs> vegetarian drug dealer. Yeah. Um, and as the abortion is happening, we see this shot of Les, and he has this like huge test tube. Graduated cylinder. Gra- oh, was it graduated? It was just like a long. <laughs> it was a graduated cylinder. Okay, it was a graduated <laughs> cylinder, uh, and he is holding it in a pouring position, but it, the visual is reverse motion. And we're seeing through Priscilla's point of view as between her legs, orange juice is essentially coming up from like by her vagina and it's coming up into the graduated cylinder and filling it up. And as it's filling up, it's um, tilting it's back. Like tilting back at, like, it's reverse motion. And it's very clear because of where we're seeing this, that it's him giving her orange juice that had LSD in it earlier in the movie, which is what he does and then takes advantage of her, is what leads to her getting pregnant. And so as the pregnancy is being undone, so too is his dosing of her being undone. Yeah. Like, the effect of him dosing her has been undone. She's not an acid anymore. She doesn't have the pregnancy. It's gone. It's a and, nice bookend to his involvement in the movie. Yeah. And it's, again, she isn't, like, really dwelling on him after it's no. over. She's like, 
like it was like they're like Fred also talks about like you should try to get him to support you and it doesn't really seem like she might be during one of those walking around montages trying to find him but it's clearly not the priority she yeah. doesn't care enough about him to really be like yeah, she never even gets his phone number. No, and I mean, understandably, he sucks. He's like a really yeah. shitty guy. He's not even that nice to her while they talk. He loves talking about himself. Ugh. Drugs are around <laughs> and they're gonna stay like, around. I just, oh, I just like know those men that yeah. are like, I know so much. I need to bequeath my knowledge upon women, sleep with them, and probably never talk to them again. Cause, yeah. uh, yeah. Well, just, life. Yeah, and he's like, he's not like a cool, like a friendly, laid back drug dealer. He's the, like, they have that exchange when they go to the field where the dog is, where she says, I'm a nurse. That's why I sounded like a pharmacist back there. And he says, I'm a pharmacist, the not so legal variety. Where it's like, you can't be oh, cool brother. about dealing yeah. drugs. Like, he has yeah. to be like a and fucking dick like, about it. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> lash, nah, he's. They're sitting under a tree, and he's like, you're looking for it, aren't you? I'm it. You yeah. found it. Ugh, so much shit like that. Yeah. Uh, the one thing in the movie that I pointed out with uh, a scene of Les and Priscilla was uh, was when they are driving around on the motorcycle, mm -hmm. and actually it's when Priscilla and, uh, or when Les first picks up Priscilla, that scene is ripped off so heavily by Anna Biller in The Love Witch. Yeah. Because there's a scene in The Love Witch. The Love Witch is a movie that came out in 2016 by a woman, and the woman is very clearly influenced by Stephanie Rothman. Yeah. But uh, The Love Witch is about this woman who is a pagan uh, practicer, and she gets picked up by this guy. They, like, go out to his vacation house, and then she ends up murdering him. But there's all those, like, frilly scenes of, like, they're sitting in a meadow, and he's talking to her about how, you know, I think he's a vegan in the movie. The, yeah, there's, I'm pretty sure, yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah, and, um, you know, the, the love witch, or the woman who gets picked up in the love witch, she's playing very innocent and naive, but really, she's the one in control. She's yeah. like totally in control. Yeah. It's like, it's in a lot of ways, it's like taking a lot of the core elements of Stephanie Rothman's uh, The Velvet Vampire, but taking a lot of the political themes of student nurses yeah. and like weaving them in. Yeah. But that shot with the motorcycle is. It's like a direct yeah. But it's so boring. It's so I don't ever get those like long shots where they're just like driving somewhere. Like, well, if yeah. this movie didn't have those shots, it would It'd probably, probably be, be like, too short to release. Yeah. <laughs> this because the credits True. came on screen at uh, a minute twenty one. A minute twenty one, and then just ended. So, or sorry, an hour twenty. An hour twenty one. <laughs> yeah, and so a minute with if you take, I would say if you took out every like walking around sequence, we're probably talking closer to like seventy five minutes. Well, <laughs> that's I, like I like the one where she's like walking around. Priscilla always wears fringe. Yeah, that's very pretty. Yeah, well, and also it's like. Because of the, well, maybe I'll talk about this more at the end when we do lessons. Oh, right. visual moments. Yeah. Well, right. one thing, one other visual thing I wanted to point out is that at the when we first are introduced to La Raza, there's a pro. They're doing their protest, their confrontational protest, and I don't know if you guys noticed, but the shot starts with a zoom in on a skyscraper of a bank yep. called Union Bank. Yeah. And it zooms out from that giant skyscraper representing just wealth and power to this, like, dirt lot where this protest is happening. Well, and, and when they do that zoom out, yeah. uh, the crowd is going, 
Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. And they're, they, I forget what Which reminded like. me so much of Sissy Strut. I don't know if you guys know that yeah. song, but at the beginning of that song, before they go into the instrumentals, the whole group just goes, it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I don't, I don't remember what they were chanting, but part of the line is between life and death, um, that they chant over and over again, mm. and it's about police violence. But a lot of what the Chicano movement was about was first about against police violence and self-identifying as Chicanos as like a solidarity base. And they were kind of sick of being exploited by the Democratic Party because they would vote consistently party line, but they never felt like they got much. It was a lot of lip service. Still to this hmm, day. Yeah, I was going to say, hmm, exactly. I've never heard of this before. <laughs> and so what they started doing is they started being self-determination group and they decided, like, we are actually going to be active. We are going to run for office. We are going to take positions and leadership mm. in the community. And it was very much like we have to own our our community and make it better ourselves. And, uh, God, it's just so relevant. Yeah. <laughs> Well, now the mayor of L.A. is a a Hispanic man. He is a very smart person. Yeah, and the governor, um, Jerry Brown, is in in California is really being a a strong leader on the left. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Jerry Brown has always been, like, very reliable for that. So, one of the things I found while I was doing some research on Stephanie Rothman is that she has had a large influence on... um, women filmmakers and the feminist movement within film. And um, I just, I thought, I got grabbed this quote that I really liked. It's from the feminist writer Pam Cook. And she said that Rothman often parodies the codes of exploitation genres to expose their roots in male fantasies and by doing so undermines them. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. And I think that she does it in a subtle enough way where it's still an exploitation movie. You know, you still get the nudity, the sex, the drama, the drugs, whatever. But there's no... It's like you were saying, Emily, where there's not just, like, boobs front and center in a shot because that's what they know the audience wants to see. It's like, no, the boobs have a reason. Yeah. (laughs) They exist because in real life, you can have an argument in bed with your lover and you're naked and why would you put clothes on to have that argument? It just makes sense. She makes a movie for both genders and by making it look so easy to make a movie for both genders. It really just shows how shitty most male filmmakers are. (laughs) Like, how limited their vocabulary is as filmmakers that they're, like, they can't think of, like, any... Like, she she spends an entire movie one after another after another going through stereotypical scenes, but then just putting female protagonists and, like, a feminine point of view on them, and you're like, wow, this scene is actually enjoyable for once. It works. The, um, so... Uh, also with Stephanie Rothman, after she did Student Nurses, Roger Corman was like, do Student Nurses too!" And, you know, he kept trying to get her to do more exploitation movies. And she was, the other thing is all, that she said is he didn't want to pay her. Yeah. Like a living wage. And so. Gender gap. Well, it's more a Roger Corman thing. Yeah. He yeah. doesn't like to pay money at all. Yeah. But um, he's like a very cheap Francis Ford Coppola, just like Stephanie Rothman, was given a movie that was incomplete. Actually, no, sorry, I'm thinking of Targets, the Peter Bogdanovich movie, Mm. which is 
he basically said, all right, Peter Bogdanovich, you can make a feature film, but I have this movie. You have to use at least like 13 minutes of this movie in your movie. Mm -hmm. Go. You can do whatever you want, but you have to do this. You have to use this incomplete movie, and the rest of your movie has to complete it. And you'll only have this much money. And so him being cheap is it's he was a very cheap yeah, guy like he's very for, cheap. for example i learned this um i listened in a great way and nothing about this is like he's he's a bad person no, yeah, it's he, just that's reason, why he's successful well yeah, yeah and the reason he's so prolific is because he's so cheap like he actually gave ron howard his first directing job and uh he american graffiti no, yeah, actually, that? before... That's George Lucas. Yeah, that's George oh Lucas. Oh my god, that's right. But he, Ron Howard did a movie called Grand Theft Auto, mm -hmm. and the reason it's called Grand Theft Auto is because Roger Corman already had bought the rights to the movie title, yeah. Grand Theft Auto, and he said, all right, Ron, if you can write a movie around this title, you can direct it. And he gave him a certain amount of uh, money, and Ron Howard tells the story of... Um, he had a scene where he was, uh, it was like a, a, a car chase race scene at the end of the movie. It was supposed to be like the big climax and they could only afford 47 extras. And it was supposed to look like, you know, there's this huge crowd of people watching this race. And Ron Howard went up to Roger Corman and said, Roger, I don't think I can make this movie with 47 extras. If we could just get a little bit more money, then I could have a few more extras and the scene would look great. And Roger Corman <laughs> said to him, Ron, you either direct this film with 47 extras or you don't direct this film at all. Yeah. But either way, when you finish this movie, this will probably be the last movie you direct for me. And, <laughs> and Ron Howard was like, okay, if I finish this movie and it does well, then I won't have to work for Roger Corman again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so he's, like, known for being a real cheap well, and, ass. And I just remember, too, Joe Dante's first movie, Joe Dante got to make it on the rule that he made it in a week. Like, he had yeah. seven days to make the movie. <laughs> yeah, the budget for student nurses was $150,000. Man, it looks so good. When we saw the print of it, it looks so good. I just keep thinking about all the locations, like that apartment that they're in is really nice. <laughs> and again, think about the, I mean, this, like, we're, we're not adjusting for time, but think about the fact that the room was made for $6 million. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brother. Um, the only other things that I have about this movie are just about... Uh, the actresses who played the nurses. Like, we already talked about Priscilla, but um, Lynn, the actress who played Lynn, her great aunt is the actress Katina Paxino, who won the Best Actress Oscar for For Whom the Bell Tolls. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, so she's like Hollywood royalty. Fred, in real life, was married to Hutch of Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> <laughs> So, and then she also was in um, the Robert Redford movie, The Candidate, okay. and she was in The Octagon, which I've never heard of, but that, that was like her second highest credit, so. <laughs> uh, oh, and she was in Salem's Lot. Or no, I'm sorry, Hutch was in Salem's All Lot. Right. <laughs> I was like, in case people didn't know who Hutch was. Um, and then Sharon, she, the only other big credit she had was she plays Gene Wilder's wife in everything you wanted to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask. Man. I do love that movie, and yeah. I didn't, I don't, I'd have to rewatch it to recognize her well, face. I just imagine she's barely in the movie then. Yeah. Because the mo the segment with Gene Wilder is not about him and his wife, it's about him and the sheep. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> she looks like a sheep. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but actually, the people who went on to be the most successful from this movie were not Stephanie Rothman or any of the nurses. It was actually most of the male characters. Yep. The Dr. Casper, he was in a ton of TV and movies. He got um, involved in like a lot of the war shows and, yeah. and movies that came out of the time. The guy who plays Victor Charlie is probably the most successful. He's still acting. He was in Dirty Harry. He was in... Cobra. He was in Rain Man. Oh man. He was in Bad Boys. Cool. Good. He's cool. been in a, ton a of career stuff. out of it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And we didn't talk about this, but uh, Victor Charlie in the movie looks just like Anton Shagur. <laughs> it looks a lot like, like Anton Shagur. He's wearing the green he's, jacket. I mean, he's a dead yeah. 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 I was gonna say the only difference is he doesn't have the exact bad haircut, but it's like oh, very it's close. close. Yeah. It Nobody is knows. so okay. close. Right. Okay. And he's Hispanic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like. He might as well. Okay, yeah. It's like as like close the, as it I, could be. I think the Coen brothers have seen this movie. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they watched Student Nurses and they were like, what if that guy was a villain? <laughs> I mean, he's kind of a villain. Also, it, bringing that up, the Coen brothers just reminds me, we should mention, uh, Tarantino is a huge fan of Stephanie Rothman. Oh, yeah. When we saw, we saw a print of Velvet Vampire shown by Chicago Film Society, and it was Quentin Tarantino's personal print of it lent out. So yeah, this, they don't have any really other prints of it. He's the type of person who he paid had, to he, get a print made of a movie. He and has a, yeah. He I mean well, but it's that's the type of if you really just are unsure if you would enjoy this movie or not. It's a Tarantino type movie. <laughs> that is all you really storytelling need. wise. Yeah, well, storytelling sure. content too. Yeah, like this is. This is the type of stuff that Tarantino watches and then masturbates about <laughs> that goes and writes Death Proof or something. And then he's like, I need to put black people in a movie about yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. And then the guy who plays the sick kid, he also is uh, super famous. He's been in a bunch of stuff. Um, he I looks like he has a wig on in the whole movie. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he it's does really look really irritating. weird. Like, they could have just shaved his head since he was so sick. <laughs> they probably should have. <laughs> Maybe he had a commercial deal that he couldn't shave his head or something. Or maybe they did, and then he looked terrible bald, so they did put that wig on him. <laughs> Redhead wig, yeah. Um, so yeah, you, Paolo mentioned uh, Velvet Vampire. That's another Stephanie Rothman movie. And so after she worked with Roger Corman, um, she went on to make a couple more movies, but she left Corman to work with Dimension Pictures, mm -hmm. and... She and her husband made uh, three movies with them. They made Group Marriage, Terminal Island, and The Working Girls. And the emphasis of those three movies is on female desire. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, she was really pushing the envelope, like, the whole time she was making movies. But even when she was with Dimension Pictures, she still had to fight tooth and nail to get... Uh, jobs like they just didn't want to hire female directors yeah. and she said she even went <laughs> she went and she met with a um, like head of production who was a woman at MGM and the woman told her that she was in a meeting earlier that day and they were talking about a vampire movie that they were trying to get made and they said yeah we wanted to have the same kind of feel as the velvet vampire by Stephanie Rothman um, so we need to get a director who can do that. And the woman said, well, why don't we hire Stephanie Rothman? And all the men in the room were like, oh, I, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> so 
she really was fighting tooth and nail to even stay in the industry. And after um, her last movie, she fought really hard for 10 years, for like a decade, trying to make a movie that wasn't an exploitation movie, and she couldn't get any work. Yeah. So she quit. She finally quit. She, you know, I don't know. I, I wasn't able to learn online what she did after she decided to quit the film industry. But her and her husband, um, that their last credit is uh, the last movie they worked on together with at uh, Dimension Pictures. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's a real shame. Like it's genuinely. She's still alive. She's doing interviews. It's and, genuinely one of the more tragic discoveries I've had as like a film lover of like someone who is this legitimately talented and not just makes great movies, but should have been able to get hundreds of millions of dollars given to her to make masterpieces like she should have been one of these people who was premiering movies at can every year she really should she's such an inherently talented director and she has an interesting point of view she has a great mind and because she was a woman in the wrong time in the wrong country yeah actually part of my teachable moment i mean i guess it kind of overlaps <laughs> yeah. but like oh hey an example of a really intelligent strong qualified woman doing good work proving good work Rich yeah. guys still call, make the shot. So, whatever. Yeah, and it Whatever, really, it's 50, 60 years later. Well, and here's here's the lie of any sort of discriminate, discriminatory system is the idea that you can earn your place in that system. It's like, it's not actually discriminating against you. We've just earned our right to be here, and you got to earn your right, too. You just have to work hard. Yeah, it's yeah. like... Uh, that myth. I've already been on a rant today about yeah. meritocracies. <laughs> yeah. It's bullshit, it's stupid, uh, it's wrong, it's, it's like, yeah. it's it's very provable, and it seems to be just one of those things we do through sheer momentum rather than any sort of logic or consideration. Yeah, um, I guess my teachable moment would be along the same lines of, like, if you're tired of hearing that we need more diversity in Hollywood, then realize that this conversation has been going on for 50 60 70 100 years like you're you're probably tired of it because it still hasn't happened yeah and and look like okay so that uh the character in the movie is in la raza uh la raza was in headlines last year because there was a judge who ruled against trump but apparently his qualifications were in question because he had donated to la raza and was an or in an organization of hispanic judges and it's still somehow in question your loyalty. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a pretty solid episode for a, a collective teachable moment. That, I think like, it's yeah. just like, yeah. it's like it, this movie is cathartic to watch. It's interesting to watch. It's still relevant, unfortunately. You're just watching, yeah, it's like watching it now. You're watching a woman who in 1970 is like smarter than like the next four decades of, <laughs> of uh, filmmaking. Like it's, and so it's cathartic in that way where you're like, it's, it's pisses you off when you watch it to be like, this woman didn't get to make more, more than seven movies, but it's, you at least know that you will, I feel like for the rest of my life, I will put this movie in and I will love it and I will be able to show it to people and they will get it. And they might not love it to the degree that the same degree that I do, but there's no way that you could be born during this movie. It's just so well made. Yeah. There's no way to be like, 
to put it on people are just like I'm just gonna I'm just I don't care I'm just gonna leave I'm not gonna <laughs> stay yeah. in your house because this movie's on it's a very very good movie after she dies people will be able to watch these movies and be like yeah she is a great director there's no argument you need providing that proves that she's like well you saw the movie and it was confusing but it's actually great it yeah. is inherently great entertainment and it is very politically savvy and aware but still approachable yeah. uh still approachable yeah it's like that and yeah so that's we for once are going to have just united uh teachable moment we are that, united and i'll add to our teachable yeah. moment in that uh, let's encourage everyone who's listening to check out more of Stephanie Rothman's Absolutely. movies. Absolutely, yeah. I, since, like like I said earlier, since we saw Student Nurses, uh, we've sought out some of her other movies, and I have yet to see one that I didn't like. And The Velvet Vampire is the easiest one to get. Velvet Vampire is actually on Blu-ray. So it is very purchasable. I think the DVD is like less than $20 if you want to watch it. Group Marriage is... I, I think... Didn't we watch it on YouTube? We watched some kind of bootleg of it. Like, we didn't... We didn't bootleg it. I want to emphasize that. <laughs> but someone gave us a copy that when we watched it, it was like, oh, this is... Actually, we rented a copy that turned out to be a bootleg. That's yeah. what happened. That's same with Working Girls. Uh, but Student Nurses has a DVD. And, well, uh, and, and Terminal Island... Has a DVD also. Well, and Terminal Island is um, the movie that Tom Selleck broke out of. Yeah. And... It is also the same premise as Escape from New York. Basically, yeah. But in this one, you get to see a woman give a guy a hand job with royal jelly. <laughs> <laughs> so. What is royal jelly? It's, it's bee-related. <laughs> it's a liquid that bees make. Matt, uh, before we get to the end, because we just did our teachable moment, we meant to ask you, uh, through this whole movie... What stuff is actually realistic in terms of the portrayal of nurses? Like, what are some... Oh, I don't know. I mean, it, a lot of things have changed in, like, 50 years. Where there, I mean, there aren't programs that teach nurses like that. Okay. that's fair. Um, you don't I mean, have not to, wear to that. mention the outfit. I yeah, know. that makes and, sense. And the subjugation. But, like, yeah, I gotta say, though, I enjoy hearing you guys talk about okay. people a lot. <laughs> like, I, I feel like I enjoy the movie more now, hearing you talk about it. I, I felt like I, it took... You know, he slept during at least. I did. Part I did fall asleep yes. during part of it. Yeah, uh, but I tend to fall asleep during movies. But if you if you're a person that likes movies, then you will love this movie. <laughs> I just had a hard time getting past some of like the style. Yeah, and, like the, yeah. Old, the really, very the really overt sexualization. Yeah, you know, yes. of things. And, and then and, there are cheesy some choppy dialogue. Yeah, there are some cheesy lines where I was like, oh, yeah. it's kind of jarring, but yeah. I can laugh at it. Yeah, like when you open a scene with with us somebody saying a sentence that completely explains the rest of the scene. I like, I like just check out. Yeah. Like, okay, I've got the major theme here. I'm not going to stop paying attention now. Yeah, that's fair. All right, well, that's good to know. All right. <laughs> well, I'm glad that our discussion helped you enjoy the movie more. Oh, yeah, a lot. Good. That's the whole point, right? Yeah. I learn as I talk. That's yeah. what I do. <laughs> All right, well, then, in that case, I think uh, there's nothing else to say, so... This has been The Secret Cinema. I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie. And I'm Emily. But also... Also Matt. Matt and Emily, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks for listening. The Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Corone. Wow.
All theme songs and original music are written and performed by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples are taken from the film featured on this week's episode. All logos and artwork are created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at Carrie Saw This and see more of her artwork at www.carriechafee.com. You can watch Paolo short films at www.vimeo.com slash or read more of his ramblings about film at www.letterbox.com slash Follow The Secret Cinema on Instagram at Secret Cinema Podcast, on Twitter at Covert Celluloid, or like us on Facebook. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. The Secret Cinema is a product of Larry Leahy Productions. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening.